Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. You know, he's done it multiple times. Very authentic guy, I gotta tell you. I think we're gonna be learning quite a bit, you know, from his journey, from all, you know, the things that he's done, you know, whether he's building, financing, you know, uh, turning page, you know, and, and, and keep building. I mean, it's really remarkable, his journey. Very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nick Damiano, welcome to the show. Thanks Alejandro, great to be here. So originally born in North Carolina, but then moved eventually to Pennsylvania. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, so um, I was born to a medical family and my dad was a surgeon and we, he was at, at uh, Duke initially doing his residency. We ended up moving around quite a bit, uh, kind of around the East Coast. Uh, and so it was something that made me learn to to deal with with change. I mean, one thing that I think this is kind of what shaped me into to who I am now as a as a founder is uh, getting constantly uprooted and having to figure things out in a new place. Um, so uh, having to kind of build new things from scratch. Now, in, in in your case, you know, eventually, you know, you you had the idea of wanting to become a doctor. I mean, how did that thought incubate it? Yeah, I mean, having been around doctors, uh, seeing my dad in the operating room, and so on. Uh, it seemed like the the right path. I had some some family pressure too to become a doctor, uh, but in the end, when I came to the West Coast, went to Stanford for undergrad, and was just entrenched in the startup scene. Started taking some entrepreneurship classes and just seeing what was going on. This is back in the, the early two thousands. Uh, I it was just too tempting for me to get into the startup world, and uh, I ended up deciding to quit pre-med, become an engineer, and go work for startups, which which also had the benefit of being a much faster pathway to get started on building things. I mean, being a doctor, you have to go through med school, residency, it's a long pathway. Uh, so I, I think it was also a little bit of impatience. Because for the people that are listening, I mean, how is it to, to be in Stanford and, and have all these people building stuff around you? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty inspiring. and. Uh, coming from the East Coast, where it's a very different culture around, or at least it, it was then, I think entrepreneurship has grown in lots of different places now, but it was a different world for me coming from the medical academic world from my family, and then seeing all these great founders and uh, startup employees that were building amazing things that, that really were changing the world. It was the, the allure of that was hard to resist. So eventually, you know, for you, you went into startup world. And the first job that you took there, you know, was with um, basically a, 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 a company, you know, <clears throat> that you actually stayed there for quite a bit. I mean, we're talking about four years, you know, it sounds like eventually, you knew you wanted to do something of your own. So what do you think, you know, was what you needed, you know, to give you that push to, to enter the venture world? Yeah, I mean, I had a few setbacks early in my career where I joined startups that uh, didn't end up working out in the end. And that was one of those cases. The company actually did come back and recovered, recapped, and ended up doing pretty well that I was an engineer at. Uh, but what I saw, so when when these these companies didn't pan out, 
I started thinking more and more that I just wanted to have the the control in my own hands and be able to have more determination over whether the company succeeded. Uh, so, I mean, whether I failed or succeeded, uh, I would have myself to blame as opposed to just being at the whim of whoever was leading it. Uh, so then that really pushed me to at least look into founding a company. And then after leaving that, that company where I was an engineer, after uh, things didn't work out, then uh, I think it was about I mean, just a few months later that I met my initial co-founders from my first company at a meetup.com event. And then we decided to go and, and start something. I mean, that's uh, quite the leap, you know, going from a meetup, you know, and meeting people like strangers to all of a sudden saying, hey, I want to go into the unknown, you know, for your first company. Walk us through that thought process. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been a little bit of an entrepreneur, so I was tending in that direction for sure. And uh, I mean, I had started a few small businesses in college and even as a kid, some startup-like things that I had worked on. Uh, but so I was looking very heavily into either founding a company or being a very early employee. And in the end, when I met my co-founders uh, and we figured out what we were going to work on for, for my first company, um, it was called New Rep, eventually was renamed as Avail. We really felt like that was something that, that had potential and uh, we could at least have a decent chance to build it and start selling it and launching it. So we gave it a go. I think the naivete we had back then as first-time founders probably helped us. Uh, I've learned since then that it's, it's easy to reject things for different reasons. Maybe we wouldn't have pursued it if, uh, if we hadn't had that naivete, but uh, we did. And I think it was all for the better. Because what ended up being the business model of Avail, MedSystems? Yeah, so basically it's it's telepresence for the operating room. And that's what it is now. And it, it's what it was back in the early days of, uh, of New Rep in uh, 2012. So we saw medical device reps were going to different hospitals and spending all this time going, traveling around, shuttling devices, waiting, going through credentialing processes. and thought that it would be a lot more efficient to have them supported remotely, support cases remotely. Uh, so then we just started building towards that model. It was really tough in the beginning because this is 2012 and we were working on 3G in a lot of these hospitals. We didn't have good Wi-Fi connections and uh, people really weren't used to digital health products like this interfacing with their Wi-Fi. So that was, was really a struggle. So it was kind of before its time. We did convince, we built the product, we convinced a few med tech companies uh, and hospitals to to get on board. It's very slow going. I think when you're shifting the paradigm like that, it's you're going to face a lot of resistance. But eventually we started making traction. So with a company with Avail, I mean, you guys weren't one of the first med tech companies to be founded by Y Combinator. With Avail Med Systems, you know, at what point does it become clear that it's time to really, you know, turn page? Because I mean, obviously the company you know, has uh, really done pretty well, you know, raised over, I believe it's 120 million, you know, rumors of perhaps, you know, in the, close to the billion dollar valuation. So how was that moment where you decide that it's time to turn page? Yeah, I mean, as, as we talked about before, with that company, my co-founders and I um, got together at a, at a meetup. And I think it's a, it's a good lesson in the fact that you really need to make sure that you 
are well aligned with with your co-founders and make make sure things are set up in the right way in the beginning. Um, so we made some mistakes, I think, both not vetting each other well enough, and uh, and also as far as the things like equity ownership and um, just other structural issues weren't really thought through well enough in the beginning. And in the end, uh, I ended up deciding to leave because because of certain reasons around those those elements. Uh, I ended up deciding to found a new company. Uh, which is my second one, Zenflow. And uh, it, it's really tough to undo situations like that. So, I mean, I think if we had thought through things more in the beginning that maybe things would have turned out differently. Uh, it's it's tough, but uh, you know, you learn from these things and then you you go on to be stronger. And I felt like coming out of that made me stronger for my next company and at least knew some things to, to do and not to do. So what was that transition like, um, you know, now that you're getting, you know, on to your next business, you know, and now, you know, it's a, it's time to, to start again from scratch with Zenflow, you know, how was that transition? Yeah, so I definitely put a lot of, a lot more time into the initial structure. And I think you have to be careful to, to not over index on things that have burned you in the past, but then also to learn from your lessons. So finding that balance was, was key. And uh, did get to know my co-founder a lot better coming into Zenflow, and uh, that relationship was was pretty strong throughout the time that we worked together uh, for eight years. So uh, ended up working out well in in that regard. I really wanted to get back into the into things that were directly, I guess, helping patients. So Avail was, I mean, it does help patients in a in kind of an indirect way, where it it uh, helps doctors in the operating room get better support for cases, which can be really um, game-changing. But I wanted to do something that was therapeutically useful, that was going to directly impact patients. It's really been one of my goals, even when I decided to, to not be a doctor anymore. I, I wanted to help patients directly. So decided to get back into the medical device or therapeutic product world. And uh, my co-founder and I ended up co-inventing a device to treat BPH or enlarge prostate minimally invasively and thought it was really promising. Uh, so even against the advice of our, our advisors who uh, thought it was going to be too heavy of a lift for us to, to build as a company, we went ahead and, and started it. So then now let's talk about Y Combinator. How was you know going through Y Combinator with Semflow? It was really, I mean, honestly, kind of life-changing. I mean, we I was still, even though I had been a founder before and I had, I had done it for a few years, I think uh, I still had a lot to learn. And my co-founders certainly did too, who came from, from FDA and had been, uh, I guess, an FDA and a big company engineer, so had not really had much exposure to anything like being a founder. And uh, it was really interesting because we were the first med tech company that YUC ever funded. And uh, so there, the people that were leading at the partners were not really well-versed on med tech at all. But we wanted to keep an open mind and come in with the mindset of there's a lot of general principles that are useful to, to startups in all categories that we can learn from here. There will be certain things that are not uh, relevant necessarily. There's, I mean, there's things that are um, applicable to software startups, like the whole uh, move fast and break things philosophy, where you don't want to necessarily break things when it's um, a patient's health at stake. So there's, there's things that you have to, to kind of recognize are not necessarily applicable, but um, 
it really put us in a place where we were thinking much bigger than just medtech, the medtech orthodoxy. And that made us a different kind of company uh, that moved faster and thought differently. And that's what really helped us get over that early hump because medtech funding was was just terrible at the time. Uh, that's why a lot of people that were advising us thought there was just no chance we'd raise the funding needed to get to the clinic and then get through the multiple stages of trials that an implantable device requires. But out of YC, I mean, Demo Day was incredibly helpful. We weren't exactly one of the hottest companies at Demo Day as, as a medical device company, but we were kind of middle of the road. And even middle of the road companies at YC Demo Day do pretty well. So we raised a good seed round, got to the clinic, and had this mentality of just um, moving fast and, and pushing through barriers that, that really served us well throughout the, the lifetime of, of Zenflow. And what do you think happened there? What do you think was the breakthrough to all of a sudden, you know, like you guys started to really pave the way there and the medtech, you know, space started to, you know, get some recognition? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you guys ended up raising 70 million bucks. So, I mean, that's uh, over 70 million bucks. So that's a significant amount of money. Yeah, I think as the as the new generation of, of medtech founders has come up, and I think this is also inspired by a lot of these programs like Stanford Biodesign, where I was involved um, many years back, and other probably hundreds of programs throughout the world that are really focused on medtech innovation. There's been this new generation of people that are coming into the medtech world that are going to places like Y Combinator and looking to other kinds of startups for, for inspiration. I think that's really changed the medtech world from where it was, let's say, 20 years ago where the last generation had a, had a certain set of beliefs on how you build a medtech company that were kind of outdated in the, the new era of medtech. And I think the new founders have really thought a lot more about just making sure upfront before you go and spend tens of millions building a product that it's actually something people want. Like the YC mantra is build something people want. And I think that's pervaded spaces like medtech too, where you make sure the market factors are well lined up to accept the product, and then also find just super fast and lean ways to uh, to do things. And that's really necessary in the, the current environment where, especially now in, in 2023 with the, the interest rates and the economy the way it is now, that you really have to move fast and be lean to, to make things happen. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C 
all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So let's say double click here on the on the actual journey and the experience of going through raising that 70 million, because when you guys raised the Series A, you know, it was uh, tough times. You know, literally you were within days of running out of money. So who do you think you needed to be at that moment as a leader? And then also the company, the way that, you know, uh, things unfolded and the team, you know, how they pushed through in order to really get it to the finish line, you know, and getting that money in. You know, I'm sure it was not easy. Yeah, that was one of the most memorable and, and trying times as a founder that I've had. Uh, and it was really stressful. So we we realized we had raised about five or six million to get us through our initial clinical data. And, and this is an implantable device, so it's not easy. You're playing med tech on hard mode. And uh, we'd gotten some data from outside the US that was was pretty good. You know, it wasn't world beating, but it was was good enough. We thought it, it made sense to go ahead and, and keep doing trials and felt like we were in a, a pretty strong place to raise money. But the market for early stage medtech at the time, and honestly, most of the time since 2008 has been really, really tough, especially for inexperienced founders where I mean, most of the money, most of the big rounds, let's say for medtech companies are going to probably 10 or 15 people that are just uh, in the pantheon of medtech and are well-established with multiple exits. We were definitely not that. Uh, so it was it was a struggle. We had to play the numbers game and go to as many investors as possible. I think we had a, a CRM of 200 investors we were talking to. We were trying to play a few different strategies in parallel, trying to get smaller investors to, to commit and lead the round. We ended up getting a great small investor to kind of lead the Series A, even with a, a small check, even though it ended up being a, a round of about 26 million in new cash, we had an investor that put in 3 million lead the round, which was a little bit unconventional for us and, and a little weird for the investor, but it ended up working out well in the end. We had a few setbacks with investors who basically committed and then didn't work out for various reasons. So we started to get to the end of our runway. And at that point, it was, I was really worried that, I mean, either we would, I guess the worst case scenario is we run out of money and we're just done. Uh, Kind of the, the second worst thing was that we lose a lot of our team who might realize that they they could be out of a job within a couple of months. Um, so it was important to, I mean, first of all, have the confidence that we were going to close it and just go out and pound the pavement and talk to as many investors as possible and try to, you know, figure out different scenarios to at least close some of the money up front and get to a first close, which we did. And then also talk to the team and message that confidence that. Like, hey, I can't, I can't guarantee you 100% that this is going to work out, but I feel very, very confident that it will. And once we get past this milestone, we're going to be in a much stronger place and we're going to need you to be here and build the next stage of this company. And everyone stayed. It was amazing because everyone stayed. And every, every month at the team meeting, I was putting up the, the cash runway and it kept getting smaller and smaller where I had to change the resolution from months to weeks. And the last meeting, I think it was like, okay, we're going to make the next payroll. The next one we won't make. And um, I feel confident we're going to close this round or at least get enough funding in to, to keep this going. Uh, but I, I can't, can't guarantee you that. And then it was really, it was three days before we were going to miss payroll that we finally pulled it out. And then we, we all went and, and had a big, uh, big celebration. And I mean, it was just 
such a, a relief and such an exciting, empowering moment to close that funding and, and be ready and, and have the whole team intact and, and eager to build the next stages. That's amazing. Now, obviously, the rest is history. And you guys were able to really, you know, get things going and, and create something really powerful there with Semflow. Now, one of the things there that, um, that I think will be interesting to touch on is board dynamics. What can you tell us about board dynamics and also giving up control that perhaps you learn in terms of lessons, you know, as part of the experience with Semflow? Yeah, I mean, I... In, for Zenflow, so we had a, a board since the Series A that was controlled majority by investors, really. And um, it's I think a lot of founders don't want to be in that position. Usually in medtech, it's hard to avoid it. So I'm not sure we could have done much to avoid that being the case. Uh, and for, for some amount of time, I think that went pretty well. Um, at some point on multiple, on, on many companies' boards, the founders and uh, investors, especially ones that are more conventionally minded or more conservative, might um, disagree on on their vision for the company. And uh, if you if you lose board control, then you're going to have to either convince them or go along with something that's not really what you what you want to be doing. And in in this case, uh, I mean, I think. It came to a bit of an impasse where there really wasn't a, a path forward for for me leading the company, and um, in the end, I, I had to to step step down, and it was uh, it was really it was really tough. Um, it was hard to do that. It was hard to see the company kind of go go in a direction that that I didn't necessarily want it to go, and didn't feel was right for the company. Um, but in the end, it was I I don't regret um, the way things went at all. I think that. Uh, it was was good to move on, and um, you end up like like with my my prior setbacks, where you know a company I worked for went under, or decided to leave a company because of a co-founder issue. You really, if you if you handle these in the right way, these setbacks, then you you can learn a lot from them and uh, come out much stronger. And I feel like in that case, this case, that that definitely happened. There's just so many lessons learned, and. Uh, so many ways that the next time around that I'll I'll do things better. But I would say to to founders that are considering giving up board control, uh, just to if you have to give up control, vet people that are going to be on your board to whatever extent you can. You cannot spend too much time vetting them, making sure they're the right fit to extent you have a choice in who they who ends up being on your board. And then I wouldn't. I mean, you you have to really fight for your own interests. And if you want your vision to continue guiding the company, uh, I mean, don't give up board seats. You don't have to really fight for every seat and and make sure every person that does join the board is as, as right as possible. So obviously, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So eventually you got, you got going, you know, with your latest baby, Andromeda Surgical. And it's quite recent too. You know, it's saying you guys got started literally this year. So, how did you come up with the idea? Why? What? What made you think that perhaps the problem was meaningful enough for you to take action here? Yeah, I think. I mean, from my own experience, having been in lots of operating rooms, there are many, many cases where surgery or procedures don't go as well as you would hope they would, and I've seen that through Avail and Zenflow, and before that, um, even. Back when I was 
observing my my dad in, in the operating room in high school when I came in a couple of times. So uh, it's amazing how many surgeries have complications and just don't have things go as well as possible. So that was kind of the meta need that we were thinking about. I was also, I mean, from from Zenflow and from other device companies I had advised, uh, they just recognized that a lot of these devices are building these deployment mechanisms that are really complex and take a long time that you could probably automate. And that was that was kind of an inspiration uh, to build something in the robotic space. I've also been really interested in in AI in general and, and came to the conclusion that the future of surgery is going to be robotic and also guided by AI. And in January of this year, I met my co-founder, Kartik, uh, from through the YC co-founder matching platform. And we he was from Autonomous Vehicles. So it's a really interesting co-founder team. I think one thing you, you don't see often in medtech is people from other spaces that come into medtech. It's usually the the FDA stuff and just the, the slow development cycles scare people away. But uh, Kartik also came in with having talked to surgical uh, surgeon friends and family members and also having this belief that robotic autonomous surgery was going to be the future. So we came in having this same interest in building this kind of a thing. And then it came down to finding the right starting point. So from Zenflow, having been in the urology space, I knew lots of urologists. So we were able to get probably 15, 20 urologists on the phone pretty quickly and feel out needs in that space. We also talked to other surgeons too, but because my network was so strong in neurology, we found a, a few different interesting applications there and thought that there was just a huge room to improve on procedures that are being done now. And then uh, just started going with that. And then, so we, we incorporated the company in April of this year. So it's just been about six months. And it was really exciting to see that I talked to Friend, friends that were investors in my prior companies and just wanted to feel out, okay, how how interested would you be in funding this? And I had a few that said, on day one, I'll write you a check. And uh, they did. So once we incorporated, we had these investors come in right away. And, um, you know, there's just tremendous enthusiasm from the investors, from the from the surgeons. And uh, so great way to, to start. And the, the team's really been a unique advantage, I think. I mean, pulling someone in from outside the space who has built kind of similar technology, but not in the same area is uh, just a huge uh, advantage. And hey, no time you guys have been able to raise some money. You know, you guys have raised a, a little bit over 6 million bucks uh, and literally you guys just are getting started. So I'm sure that being a third time founder, you know, it came in handy to raise some money. You know, how do you think that now dynamics on, cha on, on raising money have changed for you? And also what were you looking for in the investors that they, um, that you were looking for, and how did you structure things differently? Yeah, it, it helps a lot to be a third-time founder. And I think that inherently, if you've built things that people consider somewhat impressive, then then that that really makes your case stronger to raise. And this is a really hard company to build. I mean, robotic autonomous surgery is one of those things that I think as a first-time founder, I wouldn't have been able to, to make work or to convince people I could actually build it. But having those prior company experiences, having built hardware and software for operating rooms in the past, and you know, having worked in urology, having strong clinical advisors, all that stuff together really strengthened our argument. So it was tough. I mean, we were in we were actually in Y Combinator again. I now the, the first second time MedTech founder to do to do YC. And uh, it's tough with, with first time founders that we knew from the batch that 
they didn't have those same advantages. I mean, I've, I've kind of, as my co-founder, who's also a third time founder has, we fought through the trenches with our first two companies and now have finally can finally reap some of the rewards of having that experience. Um, so that is an advantage in itself. Um, this time versus the last, the last few funding rounds or the last few companies I've raised funding for, we really focused on getting the best investors. I think we were a lot less picky about what investors we brought in with prior companies. Not to say that most of our investors weren't great because most of them were in the, in the past few companies, but this time we really made sure that we only talked to the ones that, that, um, seemed like really great fits, ones that could be helpful beyond the funds. And any kind of red flag that we saw, we would just not talk to that investor. We wouldn't, we weren't desperate enough that we would just really, really take anybody. Uh, and then it's, we, we have thought a lot more about control for the company. So I've been a lot more, you don't want to be overly dilution sensitive. I mean, I think a lot of companies I see make the mistake where they set their valuation so high to minimize dilution that it impacts their raise. So we wanted to, to come at a valuation that we could we knew we could raise at, but then also was high enough that we could minimize dilution. So we were kind of better at know reading markets and finding that sweet spot, having had the experience. Um, we also one one thing that we we put into this company in the beginning that I'd recommend trying, although I uh, I've heard that this can also be often be taken out in venture rounds, uh, is having super voting shares for founders. So we do want to have some ability to to maintain more control, even if we were to give up board control at some point. And so that's one provision that uh, gives the founders more of a vote in what happens to the company later on. And hopefully we'll keep that in. So let's say you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Andromeda Surgical is fully realized. What does that world look like? I'd say, I mean, it's, what we're envisioning is a is a radically different world uh, when you talk about healthcare. I mean, it's the the full vision. I mean, the the full vision as far as what this could be in, a, in the best possible world is so big that uh, I think healthcare looks entirely different. Um, I mean, the goal is to eventually get into all different kinds of of surgery and. I mean, really make every surgeon able to to operate at the world expert level for every procedure every time. I mean, that's that's the goal. So I think outcomes will be a whole lot better that you're going to have patients that are a lot more confident going into surgery, that their risk of something happen, happening that's um, adverse, an adverse event or complication is really minimal. So, I mean, you know, we expect complication rates to come way down and just outcomes to be better, people to recover faster. And not have as many issues, not have as many repeat surgeries, uh, and then it'll be a lot faster. I think one thing this this should do is empower people to be more efficient with surgery and get through it much faster. Uh, so uh, procedures where you know it's taking two hours now, maybe we'll take a half hour to do, and then I mean I think a lot of the the wait times you see getting into surgery will also be reduced by that, or the capacity of healthcare will be expanded, and and maybe even um, you know. The, the cost can come down because it requires fewer resources, both to staff operating rooms for longer, host patients for longer while they're dealing with complications, and then also to treat those complications. So now let's look at the future with a lens of reflection. Let's say I was to bring you back in time into a time machine. Put you in a time machine, I bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment where you're thinking about launching something of your own and become a founder. Now, let's say you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and being able to give that younger Nick 
one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now, three companies in? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think, like, like I said before, just making sure that whenever you get into any big decision that's going to be company altering, and that can be setting up the company, bringing on a co-founder or a key hire, uh, you know, how your fundraise looks, bringing on board members, either investors or independent. That's all, I mean, it's so critical. These things are all like marriages in a way, and you wouldn't go into a, a marriage haphazardly, yet many founders go into these kinds of situations um, without thinking about it nearly as much as they should. So I would just advise myself to be extra careful in making those those choices and, and being really sure that that it's right. I think flip side of that is is um, you don't want to you don't want to apply that to every decision you make. Like some things are not as consequential, and, and if you take extreme caution on everything, you're never going to move that fast. So you've got to find the spots where it's really really critical to to focus. Then the things that I think the things that are are smaller. I mean, kind of conversely, you don't want to sweat those too much. That a lot of times you've got to make the call on eighty percent of the information and just move ahead and not dwell on things at long. So I think. Yeah, focus and take time on the important things and don't sweat as much the the smaller things. I love it. So, uh, Nick, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think email is fine or, or LinkedIn. I've, I've been uh, not great at responding to every LinkedIn message. I've been getting too many lately. But, uh, you know, through those, those ways, for sure, uh, would be good. We've also got a form. If people are interested in being involved with Andromeda, we've got a form on the website that I'm, or I or somebody else in the company are uh, pretty responsive to. So any of those ways should be fine. Amazing. Well, hey, Nick, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thanks, Alejandro. This is great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.